Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, would you uh, pray with me as we get started here? Lord, we are so thankful for the gift of your word, thankful that we can come together and worship you here today. And I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, would soften our hearts to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last uh, week's sermon was kind of heavy. We were talking about slaves and slavery and suffering and persecution. And so thankfully, we have a much, much easier topic to address today. Submission in marriage should be straightforward, right? Michael was like, hey, I know I'm scheduled to preach, but can you do this one for me? And I'm like, sure, no problem. And then he's like, okay, it's yours now. <laughs> it's like, tag, you're it, no touchbacks. I'm like, oh, great. Can we like, get a guest speaker to do this for us? Like, I, it's not me, it's just, I don't know, it's what he had to say. So no, it's, we can't. This is what I'm stuck with. So uh, wives, submit to your husbands. In, in all seriousness, this is the passage we're going to look at today. First Peter 3, verses 1 through 6, addressing wives. Next week, uh, Pastor Michael will talk to husbands. So by the time we're done, nobody will be happy. Uh, except the kids. There's nothing in here directly addressed to you. So you get off the hook for these two weeks. Um, one more opening remark. Our passage this week is narrowly focused on marriage. It's addressed to wives. So I'm not going to be speaking about all men and all women. Okay, I'm not going to be talking about men and women in the church. Like what are the roles that the, the men and women can have in the church. I'm not going to be talking about the roles of men and women in broader society. These are all huge issues we could address today. Rooted in the text, we're talking about wives in the context of marriage relationship. So, all that out of the way, we're going to talk about submission. Now, submission is kind of a tricky word for us. I know when I, I was a young boy in England, we used to play this game out on the playground. I don't know if any of you play it. We call it Mercy. Do you have this here where you like kind of lock hands with somebody else and then you kind of try and wrestle the other person, like wrench their wrist around until finally they, like, mercy, mercy, and then they, no? Is this just a weird British thing? Okay, all right, thanks. Great. Um, (laughs) There are some weird cultural things. Okay, so it, it is a dumb and horrible game, but when we hear that word submit or submission, often it's this is the kind of wrestling image that kind of comes to mind. Or maybe you think of a wrestler forcing their opponent, you know, to like tap out, like, I submit, I submit. It's like I'm forcibly imposing my will on somebody else. And submission is then seen as, as like a, an a grudging response to someone else's authority that's been imposed upon me. Culturally and historically speaking, this actually has often been the way submission has played out in so many places, so many marriages, so many relationships between men and women. But that's not God's plan for marriage at all. Right? That's not God's plan for marriage. God's design for a husband and wife is not two undifferentiated opponents kind of fighting for power. 
Nor is it about husbands unilaterally exerting their will on their wives. Nor is it about, about, about wives offering blind, unthinking, passive obedience to their husbands. All of these images are distortions of the plan that God has laid out for us in Scripture. Remember what we just heard, Drew just read this to us from, from Genesis 2. It does not say, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and rule in authority over his wife. That's not what it says. It says, he shall hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. If a man is commanded anything here, it's to, to take the lead in clinging tightly to his wife, not in an unhealthy, controlling manner, but with deep, loving commitment and connectedness. A husband should bond tightly to his wife. It's like, uh, like when you accidentally superglue your fingers to the toy that your, your kid has asked you to fix for you, and you're like... Okay, um, bonded tightly to your wife. But that's why this one flesh language is so important because that's God's vision for husbands and wives. Unity, oneness, a kind of mutuality where husbands are dying to self and, and sacrificially loving their wives. And wives are dying to self and sacrificially loving their husbands. So, when the, the Bible uses this word submit, or in the ESV here it says be subject to, we have to continually work to scrub our negative assumptions and images from our mind and make sure that we're really interpreting this using uh, the God-given creation plan for marriage. You know, we had the opportunity to attend uh, the wedding yesterday. So Rob and, and Amy Reno, their oldest daughter, Lissy, just got married yesterday, like last night, out in Marengo. We got to go to the wedding. It was absolutely beautiful. And Rob did the wedding. He walked Lissy down the aisle, and then he did the wedding. <laughs> it was, uh, uh, he wears many hats. But um, I love the way Rob framed the marriage relationship in his remarks. He used the image from uh, Ecclesiastes 4.12 and talked about how a cord of three strands is not easily broken. I, I know if this isn't technically a cord of three strands. I couldn't find a great image of a cord with three strands. But this is a cord and it's in the shape of a heart. So it's just <laughs> word association or something here. But he used the image from Ecclesiastes of a cord of three strands. It can't be easily broken, right? The three strands being, being husband and wife and God. And I want you to keep that image in mind as we dive into today's passage on submission in marriage about husbands and wives. Because the danger is that we can drift into debates about power and authority and, and everything else. But I think this beautiful image of the cord of three strands more perfectly captures the inherent mutuality of marriage. And this gets to my main point today. Because true submission in marriage is rooted in a heart that trusts Jesus Christ. That third strand... Whoever your husband is, whatever faults and failures he may exhibit, the only way to overcome fear 
The only way to relinquish control is by seeing and trusting the presence of that third strand in your marriage and leaning on God for the strength that you need to persevere. So, the first big question for us today is why should wives submit? Let's look at the text. Peter says, 1 Peter uh, okay, 3, verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if someone do not uh, obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now remember, Peter's main concern in this letter is the relationship between Christians and the world around them. Right? Between Christians and non-Christians. Between the church and the world. And so over and over again throughout this letter, Peter encourages Christians to focus on, on doing good deeds or, or displaying good behavior. Now why would he do that? Because in the Roman Empire, there was enormous suspicion of new religious cults. Like these are going to upset the, 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 the fragile social order. And in this context, doing good would help assuage any fears that people might have that the Christianity was trying to somehow subvert everything. Now, even if that was big picture, if even if that was a long game for God, at least initially, right, we're trying to avoid unnecessary persecution. So that's the underlying reason to explain why Peter says earlier in chapter 2 that, that we're to be subject to all our authorities, and why he tells servants to be subject to your masters, and why he says wives be subject to your husbands. Because Christians should try as much as possible to live within the existing social structures of the time. Because Peter doesn't want to unnecessarily ruffle any feathers and bring extra unnecessary persecution on believers. Like, persecution is going to come. Like, your faith is going to be offensive to many. But you don't need to, to bring anything extra unnecessarily on yourself. This was so important culturally because women who had converted to Christianity were in a very tricky spot. Wives were expected to assume the religious practices of their husbands. So if your husband converts to some new religious cult, everyone in the household was expected to just follow suit. But if a wife has just given her life to Christ, now what is she going to do? Unlike slaves, amazingly, in Roman culture, it was actually possible for, for wives to get a divorce. Not necessarily super easy, and there were all kinds of consequences. They would have to leave their children behind, for example, but it was possible. So should she leave? Should she try and maybe force her new religion on her husband? And Peter says, no, <laughs> definitely, don't leave. But neither should you give up your faith either. You should stay, you should remain faithful to God, but you should submit to your husband, even if he's not a Christian. So Peter is not simply concerned about keeping the status quo in a sort of unthinking manner, uh, because there's another reason that he wants them to submit, and that's the conversion of their unbelieving husbands to faith in Christ. Look at verse 1. Peter says, he says, so that they may be one. 
so that they may be one to Christ. Your unbelieving husband might come to faith in Jesus Christ as this missionary evangelistic thrust to this command to submit. Leave the marriage and there's no possibility of your husband hearing the gospel, coming to faith in Christ. Stay in the marriage and pester and badger and harass and irritate and be obstinate and be difficult. And all of that behavior will be blamed on Christianity again, bringing more persecution and keeping others from hearing the gospel. So instead... Peter reiterates the pattern he's been setting before his audience throughout this letter. It's not just like he singles out wives here. He says all of us are supposed to to be acting in a way that is obedient and compliant because it gives us an avenue to preach the gospel, to share the good news with other people. Now obviously, Peter does not mean that an unbelieving husband will somehow magically just absorb the gospel through his wife's silence. Right? Her good deeds don't save her, so her good deeds aren't going to save her husband either. But her voluntary submission in the marriage, it kind of creates this, this fertile ground where the seeds of the gospel can be planted and begin to, 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 to grow roots and eventually bear fruit in repentance and faith. But there's a third reason that he gives here that wives should submit. And that's her, that's that her submission to her husband should be rooted in her identity in Christ. It's her faith in God that allows her, her to yield herself in the marriage, even to an unbeliever. Look at verse 2. It says... Uh, in my translation, it says, be respectful when they see your respectful and pure conduct. But a more literal translation there, the Greek word would really, it just says, in fear. In fear. So what does he mean? Like, is he talking about be afraid of your husband? No, it's not what he's talking about. Peter it's the same exact command that Peter gives to all Christians in 117, where he says, Conduct yourselves um, with fear throughout the time of your exile. And it's the same command that he gives to servants. In verse 18, be subject to your masters with all respect. But the phrase is actually in fear. That fear is not directed towards human authorities. Remember we read in, in verse 17, Honor the emperor, fear God. That's what he's talking about here. Christian behavior should be driven by a, a healthy, reverential, submissive, humble fear of the Lord. In other words, in the end, a wife's highest authority is God, not her husband. He doesn't rule over her. God does. And her submission to him is always set within that framework. So wrapping up this first section, the main command here for wives is simple. Be subject to, or in plainer language, just submit to their husbands. But the reason they do this is not because their husband demands it. There's nothing in here about that but out of a healthy fear of God who is their true authority. 
They submit because this will prevent unnecessary persecution. And they submit because by doing this, they may win their unbelieving husbands to the Lord. Having said all that, what, what then does this kind of submissive behavior look like? That's the next question we have to ask. So why should they submit? And now, now what does that submissive behavior look like? Well, let's keep looking at the text. Peter says here in verse 3, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now you've probably noticed it's slowly becoming almost impossible to go anywhere online without being harassed by endless series of ads and pop-ups and little videos touting by the next health craze or some new diet or some, some uh, 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 better clothes, pictures of people wearing all different kinds of new clothes that we should be buying. I mean, it's everywhere that you go. Almost everyone has a, has a, has a camera in their pocket with them at all times and at all places. Which on the one hand is a wonderful blessing, right? The capturing special moments with, with friends and with family. But on the other hand, it's become this stumbling block to us because our whole lives are photographed, videoed, curated, and made public for the world to see. And in that context, it's hard not to, to become somewhat consumed with the way we look or the way we're perceived by other people. It's hard not to get caught up in thinking that who we really are is dependent in some way on on how we look on the outside. And it turns out that although the... That's unfortunate. This is why we need our... Okay. Alright, get that. We'll just put it there. Um, uh, and the amazing thing, as I was studying this week, is the Greeks and Romans were every bit as obsessed with these issues as we are today. I mean, they didn't have Instagram, they didn't have Snapchat, and this was still a problem for them. So it was fascinating this week to read through excerpts from philosophers and writers from this time period and to see this same tension as they're talking about hair and makeup and, and clothes and jewelry and how women should look and act. And there's this tension constantly between, on the one hand, this is the way that women should look. They should look like this. And this is our certain ideal of what kinds of clothes they should wear. And on the other hand, it's like, well, but they shouldn't wear too much makeup. And there shouldn't be too gaudy kind of jewelry. And, and this kind of clothing is too immodest and might elicit like the kind of wrong responses from people. These are Greeks and Roman philosophers wrestling with these same issues that we do today. It's this impossible bind that women find themselves in. Trying to look beautiful, but not too beautiful, right? Trying to look young, but don't overdo it, and trying to look too young, And it's fascinating because even though the specifics vary from culture to culture, the often incredibly heavy demands placed on the way in which wives should act and dress in public are surprisingly universal. 
And it's this is the context into which Peter offers his advice to wives about the way in which they should look. So the first part of the advice is not that unusual for the time. Like I said, you can find dozens of philosophers saying, hey, be careful about wearing too much makeup and jewelry and fancy clothes. But where Peter differs is in the alternative that he offers. Because he says, instead of obsessing about the externals, which, by the way, is a losing battle, he says instead, uh, in the text, focus on it's literally like the hidden person of the heart. Like, like it's almost this image he gives of this little person inside you. Like that, that, that inside you is the real you, and that's where your attention should be. Kind of like when Jesus said that what we eat doesn't determine whether or not we are clean, but what comes out of our, our heart. And in the same way also for Peter, what we wear is largely irrelevant since the important matter is our inner self, what's in the inside. So look, the application here is not focused on whether or not you can braid your hair or wear jewelry or put on makeup. Let your conscience and your culture guide those decisions because it's going to vary. And honestly, look, focusing all your attention on what you're not wearing or what makeup you're not putting on still keeps all the attention in the wrong place, which is on all the externals. You can over-focus it on what you are wearing. You can over-focus it on, on, well, here, I'm not wearing any of these things or doing any of these things. And Peter's like, scratch all of that. The crucial matter here is on your heart, on your character, Peter encourages women to live lives that are humbly submitted before the Lord and to make their decisions with an eye to that relationship. So he says, your true identity is something that Peter calls here imperishable. Imperishable, literally, like it will be with you into eternity. Your inner person will be with you into eternity. Age cannot Erase it. Disease cannot kill it. So if you're going to spend time and energy and attention working on something, he's like, work on that. Put all your eggs in that basket. You can't Instagram it, but eventually it will bleed through into every aspect of your life, every relationship, every action, every context where you are, will eventually be impacted by who you really are on the inside. So invest in your character, in your heart. But what specifically does Peter mean here by having a gentle and quiet spirit? Well, there were Roman philosophers who claimed that uh, women should be seen but not heard. Like, literally, they should be sequestered at home and kept silent. But that's not what Peter is talking about here. A gentle and quiet spirit is actually a virtue encouraged for all Christians, men and women alike. Remember, the the word gentle here is the same exact word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Literally, blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. It's the same word that Jesus uses to describe himself. 
gentle and lowly. Jesus talking about himself, the model that we should be following. So Peter here does not mean that all women should be meek and mild and passive. After all, God himself has made plenty of godly women who are extroverts. And submission in marriage does not mean silence. Husbands and wives should work together towards shared solutions to their problems and disagreements. However, Peter is calling all wives, introverts or extroverts, to consider the way in which they approach that. Again, getting at their heart. So, for example, you may very well know more about your husband than something. But how you present that to him, or to anyone for that matter, is actually a reflection of that hidden inner self. So, do your words then reveal pride? Thinking that you know better than everyone else? Or perhaps do your words reveal bitterness because you've, you've lost sight of God's grace in your life and you no longer want to extend it to your husband? Or perhaps do your words and actions display anger in your heart because you've, you've given up on being patient and kind and have decided to just take control and do it all yourself? The bad news for us is that nobody is born naturally meek or gentle. Nobody is. Quiet, maybe, but not meek in the sense that Jesus models for us. So we are all works in progress, husbands and wives alike, and we blow it frequently, maybe even this weekend. You know this has happened in your marriage. But the good news is that there is hope. Right? Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit at work in our lives. So even today, if you recognize that you're struggling to follow Jesus' example of being gentle and lowly in spirit, know that His death paid the penalty for that sin, and He now gives you His Spirit to help strengthen you to do what you can't do on your own Strengths. There's tremendous hope for change. Because with God at work in your life through, pe- through prayer, through the work of the Spirit, He can bring incredible transformation. But there is a third question we want to address today, and that's why does Peter use Sarah as an example? How does she fit into this? Look with me here, verses uh, 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now in today's culture, it's pretty hard to imagine calling anyone Lord or Master. I mean, it's kind of a jarring thing to read or to hear read out loud. Right? So, so this reference to Sarah obeying Abraham and calling him Lord, it's kind of strange. But what does it mean? How does this apply to uh, our text? What's the connection with the rest of the passage? Well, first of all, just as Peter used Jesus as an example when he was talking about suffering, so here he uses the holy women of old as an example for wives to follow. 
and specifically Sarah. Now, the reference to Sarah is a little bit tricky because honestly the only reference we have in the Bible to Sarah calling Abraham Lord is, is, is a passing comment that she makes. So this is uh, Genesis 18. And remember the Lord comes to, to visit them and says, Oh, uh, when I come back you're going to have a baby. And Sarah is kind of listening in the tent. And behind the scenes to herself... She laughs and says, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? So it's hardly really like a clear model for submission. <laughs> it's not a very obvious connection at all. Now, uh, commentary suggests that it, it's perhaps more likely here that Peter's drawing from, from Jewish traditions that it elevated Sarah as being the prime example of a virtuous woman. And virtuous women were understood to be obedient to their husbands. But the emphasis here is not on the fact that Sarah called Abraham Lord. Therefore, all wives should call their husbands Lord. That is not the point here. The point is that she tried to live in obedience to both God and Abraham. Even with this great hero of the faith, this was extremely challenging, especially given the fact that he often put her in quite dangerous situations. So Sarah is commended for her reverent submission. But again, although he uses her as an example, I think there's something deeper here than just be like Sarah. Because if you look at verse 6, he says, And you are her children, if you do good, And do not fear anything that is frightening. So if you remember, to be a son of Abraham, we talked about this in Galatians, to be a son of Abraham meant that you are part of the chosen people of God. And Peter uses that same kind of language here and addresses specifically to wives and says, you are a daughter of Sarah if you act in this way. Not just standing in the line of virtuous women of, of Jewish tradition, but, but co-heirs, co-inheritors of the promises made by God to Abraham. And the way to become a daughter of Sarah is by doing good and not living in fear. Now these are totally... I, don't, I can't think of a time when, when Christians have not lived in a scary and unpredictable time. In some sense, there's nothing unique about... 2021 or 2020 or COVID or anything because there's always been wars and plagues and and unrest and uncertainty and persecution and suffering. But I think Peter recognizes that mothers in particular are constantly working to minimize any and all potential threats to their well-being of their family. I don't want to overgeneralize The mothers are naturally very protective of their family, of their children. It's like it's hardwired, which is good. It is admirable. But that fear can become all-consuming and then lead to other kinds of problems, especially in the marriage. So perhaps your husband doesn't see the same threats as you do, or, or maybe he doesn't take them quite as seriously. Or maybe he has a different solution to them than you do. Or tries to minimize or downplay your concerns and your fears. Then what? 
And I think Peter is trying to say here that a virtuous, Sarah-like form of submission will resist the temptation to think or act or speak out of fear, even of things that are genuinely frightening, and instead trust God completely for the safety of her family. Now, just as a side note here, I have to say this does not mean submitting to abuse. Okay, that's, that's not what Peter is talking about here. If you're in an abusive situation, it is very simple. You're called to get out and get safe and get help. That is not, he's not saying submit to an abusive husband and stay. If you're in that situation, this is not about staying and trusting God for safety. You should get out and get, and get safe and get help. But for the normal kind of stuff of life that come up in a marriage, he says, trust God and you'll become a daughter of Sarah. Now pulling all these pieces together as we wrap this up, um, what does submission look like today? Well, I think it's one way to put it is it's a willingness to yield to your husband, rooted in your trust in God. Not because you're forced to do so, but because you want to. Now, Peter doesn't say, husbands, demand submission from your wives. That is not in the text. Men, you do not have the right to demand that. Peter speaks to wives. His comments are to wives. And recognizing their freedom to do otherwise, nevertheless, he asks them to submit to their husbands. It's like saying, hey, we're both capable of driving this car, but I'm letting you take the wheel. So what does that look like in practical terms? For starters, it probably means talking a lot less about submission in marriage. Why? Because submission is a means to an end. Submission is not the goal. Like, like we've got to devote all time, energy, and effort in order to reach the goal of submission. Submission is a means to the goal of unity and oneness in the marriage. That's the goal that we should be fighting for and pursuing. And if you lose sight of that goal, everything else is going to start collapsing around you. So in concrete terms, if the goal is unity, then submission might include things like not going behind your husband's back because you've decided you know better than him on something. So there's a tree in the front yard and and you know that something, it needs to be fixed, taken care of, branches cut or whatever. And you've been asking, you've been talking about this, and he's not listening, or he's, he's putting it off, or procrastinating, or just forgot, or disagrees with you, or whatever. Submission means you don't just call the tree guy up and have him come over on Monday and fix it, and then deal with whatever kind of um, uh, uh, outcome of that is with a marital conflict later. Submission is a commitment to keep working on this issue until we can reach unity. Because in the end, who cares about the tree? Like, the crucial thing is unity in the marriage. And we can get fixated on solving immediate problems or fighting over these little issues and ignoring that greater goal. 
So submission doesn't mean running every decision past your husband for approval, which first of all is not even possible, but also displays a complete lack of trust in the marriage. Again, working against this goal of unity and oneness. It means exhibiting patience and perseverance as you work towards agreement in areas where you don't see eye to eye yet. Submission might also mean a commitment to showing grace to your husband. It may turn out that after a few years of marriage, you realize he's not exactly the man that he thought he was marrying. He has a few more faults and, and failures than I had sort of envisioned. In fact, I kind of married a, a, a man who has a long list of things that need fixing. <laughs> Submission is trusting God that He will accomplish His purposes through your marriage on His time frame. It means trusting your husband, I mean, treating your husband with the same grace and patience and compassion and tenderness that God displays to you and that you would want others to display to you in your times of struggle. It's a humility to say, I might be just as flawed as he is. That I'm not perfect. That that I may need help as much as he does. Submission doesn't mean silence, but it does mean there's a way to share your concerns, feedback, opinions, whatever, in a way that's healthy and constructive and honoring with the goal of oneness and agreement, not the goal of asserting my will over another person. In the end, both husbands and wives should be striving to become more and more like Christ, which means more and more dying to self, more and more living for another person. And when husband and wife are pursuing those goals, then the topic of submission is probably rarely going to come up. So as we finish, I want to close again with that image of the, the cord with three strands that the Pastor Rob was talking about from Ecclesiastes, woven tightly together with husband and wife bound together by the power of God and the work of His Spirit for their good and for His glory. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful for this gift of marriage. It's, it's, it's a mystery that we wrestle with and we, we struggle to make sense of, that we struggle to live out daily in our lives. And we need your help, Lord. We need your help to live graciously, patiently, and submissively with each other and in a way that brings glory to you. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.